Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. I think what we see emerging is essentially new forms of secular orthodoxy forming, and we can really view these modern-day hate speech cases as an equivalent, really, of the blasphemy cases of old. Getting your kids counter-programmed to have their social life family and community focused, this is generally what the research suggests is useful for a successful transmission of values across generations. The Lord does not set us to look for escape from trouble. He sends his church right into the midst of trouble. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. We're not taught to look for an escape from trouble, but to confess Christ and let come what may. Lord, thank you that I belong to a we. I am baptized into your church so that that even if I feel alone, I can pray the first word of the prayer Jesus gives me and know that I'm not alone. I belong to your church, Lord. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to Issues Etc. All right, guys, let's go. You're having a conversation with someone who is an unbeliever. You're a Christian. They are not. So how does that conversation go? We all know that there's that pressure, and maybe it's legitimate, maybe it isn't, to somehow broach the subject of religion, to begin telling people about what you believe, might it be a better approach, at least initially, to find out what the unbeliever believes, to ask a few questions? Welcome back to Issues Etc., live on this Tuesday afternoon, September the 19th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Joining us to talk about using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers Greg Kokel, he's founder of Stand to Reason, based in Signal Hill, California. He's adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Biola University and author of several books, including his latest, Street Smarts. Greg, welcome back. Todd, I am glad to be back. It's been too long. You say that we might be approaching evangelism in a manner that is unsuited for our time. What do you mean by that? Well, I became a Christian almost 50 years ago, Todd, during the Jesus Movement, and uh, back then it was pretty easy because our culture understood Christianity, Christian language, Christian terms, etc. Then you just kind of preach the simple gospel, and people got it, they understood it, the Holy Spirit was working in a particular way, and many people just prayed the prayer at the end of the tract and became Christians, all right? Well, that was half a century ago. Now the way people look at Christianity is very different. It's no longer a pro-Christian culture or neutral Christian culture or a non-Christian. is a hostile to Christianity. That's the way culture is right now. And the language that we use oftentimes to speak to people about Christ and the kingdom and all of that is that old hackneyed kind of language. When I say hackneyed, I mean the way people hear it. Mm 
And it's just religious noise to them, okay, because they don't have understanding. Now, if you look in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. And when he gives a description of the seed that falls on the hard ground on the road and the birds pick it up and take it away, well, we think, oh, that's just hard-headed people. It just bounces right off. They don't want it, okay, because they're hard-headed. Well, Jesus has a different characterization. And here's what he says. He says, when the word of the kingdom for the first ground the word of the kingdom is spoken, and they do not understand it, then the devil comes and snatches that word away. The word that's been in the, put, placed in their heart is what he says. So the critical issue there is understanding. When you go to the fourth ground, the one that bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold, Jesus said, they hear the word and they understand it. So here's my question, Todd. Is the way that we are communicating the gospel and the manner, our kind of gospel methodology, is this a way in which people at least understand what we're talking about? And I don't think that's true. I think most of the time we're drawing on phraseology and techniques that were useful 50 years ago, but not today. And what people don't realize is that we have actually, the way we do evangelism is a received tradition that we have that goes back actually about 150 years to the second great awakening and Albert Finney and the altar calls and the praying to receive Christ and all of that, that's relatively new. It's not the biblical manner. Now, I'm not against altar calls and I'm not against using tracts and praying with people to receive Christ. However, you don't have any altar calls in the book of Acts. You don't have any invitations to pray to receive Christ as Lord and Savior in the Gospels or the book of Acts. You have something different going on. And the distinction that I make, Todd, between these two methods is harvesting on the one hand versus gardening on the other. Jesus called it reaping or sowing in John chapter 4. And he said, look, at one sows and one reaps. And the disciples in John 4 were about to reap Jesus said, where they did not sow. In other words, some are sowers and some are reapers. And my reflection has been that, and it's pretty obvious when you think about it, there's not going to be any harvest unless you have a season of what I call gardening, or Jesus called sowing. The hard work is in the sowing, the gardening, not the harvesting, because when the fruit is ready, when the fruit is ripe, it falls into the basket. Now, I've been taking a, a poll, Todd, lately when I've been doing my talks recently since Street Smarts just was released mid-September. I started polling my audiences, and as I'm talking about the concept of gardening versus harvesting, getting people to pray the prayer, getting them to come forward at an altar call. I pulled the audiences and I asked this question, how many here are Christians who did not become a Christian through an altar call or through somebody praying them in the sinner's prayer to receive Christ? And my average of, I've done this five times now with large audiences, the average is about 65 to 70% of the people in the audience did not come to Christ that way not by somebody leading them. They actually came to Christ the New Testament way. The gospels preached in various forms, in various ways, different aspects of it, explained to the people in language they understand. And then the Holy Spirit does the harvesting when the fruit is ripe.
And so this opens up a whole new avenue, Todd, for a lot of people who thought, gee, I got to share a tract and get people to pray to receive Christ. I got to get them to sign on the dotted line. I got to close the deal in order for my efforts as a Christian evangelist or a Christian ambassador to be justified. And I'm saying, no, you don't. And if people think that, by the way, they're not going to get out in the street. The street is dangerous nowadays. That's where you feel uncomfortable. You feel at risk. They're not going out there. They're going to sit on the bench and not be involved. And a big emphasis that I make in Street Smarts, and it's part of the tactical game plan that came before it, is that I want people to worry about gardening well, not harvesting. The harvesting will take care of itself if the gardening is done well. And we haven't given them gardening tools. And that's what Street Smarts is all about. So why are questions the best initial approach to engaging unbelievers? Well, for one, we're copying what Jesus did. I mean, when Jesus faced opposition, he asked lots and lots of questions. I think the number is something like 280 or so questions that we read in the Gospels that he engaged people with. But there's a couple of really good advantages. First of all, when you're asking questions, you are showing an interest in the other person. You are asking that person to tell you something about themselves or their ideas or their convictions, all right? It's just common courtesy. You're drawing somebody else out. A lot of parents will say to their kids, look, when you get with your group, don't hog the conversation. Ask a lot of questions, show an interest in someone else, and draw them out. So that's one. Secondly, when you ask questions, especially when we're talking about spiritual, theological, ethical issues that are really important, we are getting an education about what other people think, all right? Now, this is really important because if we don't let people tell us in more detail what they think, what their ideas are, it's going to be really easy for us to presume on that and maybe misrepresent their view. Not meaning to, but we misrepresent it. Now, misrepresenting somebody's view is not only bad manners, it's bad thinking. It's called a straw man. And we do not want to defeat a view that they don't hold. So we want to draw them out and gather more information so we understand their view. But it's not just us understanding their view better. We want them to understand their view better. The fact of the matter, Todd, is that so many people raise objections to Christianity or offer alternates, alternate viewpoints, atheism, pro-choice, whatever, and they have never really thought through the issue. And by asking questions of their issue, asking clarification questions or justification questions, what do you mean by that clarification? How did you come to that conclusion? justification. We are requiring of them to flesh out their ideas more richly, and oftentimes they haven't done that. And this helps them too. I'll tell you another big reason that questions are great. This is the third of four that I'll mention. And the third one is that it puts us in the driver's seat of the conversation. Part of the tactical approach, which the book of tactics, which we've talked about in the past, focuses in on and street smarts trades on is to be in the driver's seat of the conversation, directing the conversation the way we think it's best, even though we're not doing most of the talking. And the way they do that is the way you're doing it right now, Todd. I'm doing all the talking. I'm doing all the heavy lifting, but I'm going in the direction that you point me by the questions that you ask. So those are all really, really powerful reasons. But here's one of the most powerful reasons that questions are best. Questions keep you safe. 
And one of the chapters in Street Smarts focuses entirely on the safety that questions provide for the Christian. They don't want to go out in the street. They don't want to go where it's dangerous, where they're at risk, because they don't know how to handle themselves, okay? Once you learn how to handle yourself, it's easier, okay? It feels more comfortable. We are more relaxed. And when we're asking questions, we are not making statements. You make a statement, you have something to defend. People are going to push back on it. When you're asking questions, though, you're like ankle deep in the pool, right? It's easy. You're in the shallow end. There is no risk to the Christian who is just asking questions. Questions keep them safe. Greg Kokel is our guest. We're using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers. We'll get to his Columbo tactic next. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. Issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministry sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. St. Peter encourages us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is where we get the Greek word for apologetics, that is to defend the Christian faith. The September issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topics of apologetics and archaeology and discusses both of them in detail with articles from Paul Meyer, Sarah Rinsel, Mark Meal, and David Adams. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers. Greg Kokel of Standard Reason is our guest. Greg, what is the Columbo tactic? Well, Columbo, of course, and when I say of course, you and I know who that is, and so do a lot of people that are like over 40. A lot of young people don't know. He is the number one TV icon of all time, according to polls. He is the detective murder detective, shows up at the crime scene, looks bumbling, incapable, inept, scratching his head, mumbling to himself like he doesn't know what to do. He's stupid. 
but he's stupid like a fox because he's got a plan. And at some point, as he's checking things out, he puts his fingers to furrowed brow like he's deep in troubled thought and says something like, I don't know, there's something about this thing that bothers me. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask you a question? And that's the way he proceeds through the entire discussion. He's coming in under the radar, like he's not a threat, asking questions about the circumstances, gathering all kinds of information. But he changes at a point depending on the information he's getting. Because once he gets adequate information, he realizes he's starting to suspect who the murderer is. So he starts shifting his questions now to draw particular pieces of information out that has to do with the alibi or other details of the crime scene, et cetera, et cetera, because he's gathering the information that he thinks is going to implicate the murderer. And then, of course, you got the mic drop moment at the end of the episode where he puts it all together and he catches the killer, all right? Well, there's a similarity here with what we're doing in uh, the tactical game plan in general and in Street Smarts. I call the tactic that is the heart of the game plan, and there's three steps to the game plan. I call that tactic the Colombo tactic because of the questions we use in honor of the infamous Lieutenant Colombo. And there are three different ways we use questions to move forward, and they're very similar to what Colombo did. So the Colombo tactic is the embodiment of the concept of using questions to move forward, not just to gather information, but also to make a point. And in particular with Street Smarts, and this is in the subtitle, we're going to use questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. So the word Columbo, after Lieutenant Columbo, is meant to capture the sense of the game plan. That's the game plan, Columbo number one, Columbo number two, Columbo number three, the steps in the game plan that allow us to maneuver effectively in even difficult conversations. So what are those three parts, if you would? Well, the first step is very simple, and I encourage Christians, when you are encountering a circumstance that you think might have some spiritual consequence, and a wide variety of those, I sit down on the airplane next to lots of people because I'm on a lot of airplanes. I have conversations with waitresses and waiters. I, we have friends that maybe spiritual topics would come up, or maybe we're being challenged, okay? The very first step of the game plan is simple. I do not want people looking down the line thinking, how am I going to lead this person to Christ? You have no idea, first, if they're a stranger, if they're a Christian or not. Secondly, if they're open to anything you have to say, if they even want to talk about anything spiritual. So you're not worried about that. You're not going to worry about anything else that might come up. Don't focus on that. Only focus on one thing and one thing only. And that's the first step. And that is gathering information, gathering information. Okay, you want to find out the lay of the land. You need intel in order to either know where you're going to go next with your next question, or even if you have a, a reasonable opportunity to go further. Okay, so that's the first step. Now, there's a model question that I'm going to offer here that makes it very easy to take the first step. And that model question is, what do you mean by that? or some variation. Now, I'm not sure I understand you. Can you get, talk about that a little bit more? You raise this thing, you say the Bible's been changed. Okay, what do you mean the Bible's been changed over time? Okay, and let them talk. Oh, you say there is no God. Okay, what kind of God don't you believe in? 
Okay, they're variations of atheism or agnosticism. Let them talk, get more information. You say, uh, you're, I'm pushing my morality or forcing my morality on you? How am I forcing my morality on you? Oh, I'm intolerant? What do you mean by intolerant? It's ridiculous to believe in God? It's irrational to believe in God? In what way is it irrational to believe in God? Notice these are all fairly common challenges, Todd, that are directed at the Christian. Now, the Christian is on the defensive right when they hear the challenge. Now what? They might be thinking, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how to deal with that. Don't worry about that right now. Just ask for more information just like I role modeled, okay? So the question here, and this is another advantage of questions that I hadn't mentioned, is to buy you more time to think about what comes next. You're buying time, okay? Now you want them to give you more information. And some Christians might think, wait a minute, I'm already uncomfortable with the challenge. Are you telling me that I have to ask for more information from the person who's challenging me? And the answer is yes, exactly. Why would you do that? Here's the reason. A couple before, so you understand their views, represent it, give them a chance to talk, buys you some time, it's polite, whatever. But here's another thing. If Christianity actually is true, which I'm convinced of, and if it turns out that their contrary view is false, which I'm also convinced of, then the more they talk, the bigger the hole is that they're digging for themselves. Likely, they'll be talking more and more about a falsehood. And oftentimes, not every time, Todd, but oftentimes that falsehood becomes more and more obvious as they continue. Okay, so that's the first step. You're just getting information. You're getting information about their view and what exactly it is. Now the second step. Once you know what they believe, you want to know why they believe it. Now, that's the question they ask us, and we get caught off guard sometime. That's what you want to ask them. We're gathering a second kind of information, and that second kind of information is the reason or the rationale for their view or for their objection. So if they talked about the Bible's been changed, and then they explained to me, based on my first question, what do you mean by that, about exactly what they mean, then I have another question, and that is some form of the question, how did you come to that conclusion? Or why do you think that's the way it happened, for example? Or anything like that. You want their rationale. Now, again, we're listening patiently, and we may be surprised with both questions. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? The first and second steps of the game plan. We may be surprised pleasantly to know that people often don't even know how to answer that. It's amazing, Todd. You'd think somebody that's advancing their point of view understands their own point of view and can give you reasons why they hold their point of view. That is not the case. So many people have been socialized to say certain things against Christians, and they have never thought them through. So you might end up getting dead air. You know, you might get crickets or something like that when you ask the question. And that itself can be what I call a stone in their shoe, because that's what I'm after here. I'm not trying to, in one step, in one encounter, in one conversation, convince them that Christianity is true and give them and help them to become a Christian and pray to receive Christ at that moment. No, what I'm doing is gardening. To mix my metaphors, then I'm trying to give them something that annoys them a little bit in a good way, like the stone in the shoe. 
They got to deal with it. I want them thinking about Jesus because I think Jesus, or broadly the Christian worldview, because Jesus is worth thinking about. So there's the first two steps of the three-step game plan. The first one, just gather basic information, get intel, ask what do you mean by that? The second one, if they give in a point of view, an opinion, then you want to know how did they come to that conclusion? In both cases, the Christian is in the shallow end of the pool. It's not hard. It's very easy. There's no risk to them at all. If the other person says, well, why don't you tell me what your view is? Well, you don't have to say that. tell them if you don't want to. You could just say, well, at this point in the conversation, I just want to be clear on your own views. Okay, so there's the first two. No sweat, no trouble. And I do tell some people who are not familiar with the tactical game plan, if you just want to get used to it, just use those two questions. Be a student of other person's views for a couple of months. You'll see how easy it is and how safe it is. Okay, third step of the game plan. The third step of the game plan is to use questions to make a point, to make a point. Now, the specific point that we're going to be pursuing using Street Smarts, and if people are familiar with the game plan, Street Smarts is like the third step of the game plan on steroids, because we are going to use our questions to either deflect a challenge or to try to help a person see why his own point of view is flawed in some way. So if we're talking to an atheist, we want them to see that atheism is not an adequate explanation for the world. And we want to give them something to think about regarding that. If they're pro-choice, we want them to realize that this is not a morally sound position. And we want to give them something to think about in that particular case. If their attack is on, say, science in the Bible, and all of these are addressed in the book, I have two chapters in atheism, one on the problem of evil, two chapters on the Bible, challenges to the Bible and science, challenges to the idea that the Bible allegedly teaches genocide and racism. I have uh, two chapters on abortion. I have chapters on the person of Christ and salvation. I have a chapter on Jesus being God or the Son of God and the distinction there. I have, if there is a distinction, and then I have a chapter on gender and sex and marriage. We're covering all the hot button issues, but here's the goal. We're going to try to show with our questions, that the views that they hold or the challenges that they've offered are seriously compromised. But we're not just going to preach at them. We're going to show them using the tactical method. We're going to be shrewd with our questions. But this is where, Todd, you run into a kind of a speed bump in the tactical game plan. First of all, if you want to use questions to expose a flaw, you need to know what the flaw is. And the bulk of each chapter dealing with all those issues that I talked about is showing the problems with the views. There are various aspects of these views, and there are various problems that pertain to these views that I talked about. You need to know the problem. But if you're going to be shrewd and not just straightforward saying, here's the problem, you're wrong because A, B, C, and D, you're going to use questions. But in order to do that, you need to know the A, B, C, and D, that is the steps to get to the conclusion and you need to know the questions that will get you there, okay? And this is what I think is very unique about Street Smarts because like most apologetics books, I do give a rationale for how these points of view are flawed. But then I say, okay, here's the way a dialogue would flow. 
You want to take this rationale and then you ask this question and they'll probably respond this way. And then the next question is this. And the next question is this. And that's how you move forward in the conversation. Probably the best way to explain this, Todd, is to give a quick illustration. Say you're talking to an atheist who says, give me a good reason that God exists or prove to me that God exists or something like that. Now, I'm not going to try to prove anything. And I'll just make that point. And part of the reason is, is I don't know what he considers would be adequate proof. So there's the, the word itself is compromised. Secondly, I don't want to take the whole massive burden of proving whatever that means to that person, that God exists. Rather, I'm going to give a good reason why God exists and then make the case that that's the best explanation for the way things are. Not atheism, but theism. So if he offers the challenge, I'll start out like this. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Okay, I'm moving into my Columbo tactic, my game plan. No, go ahead. I'll tell them the first couple of questions are pretty easy, all right? But the last one is the one that counts the most, okay? So here's the first question. Do you believe that things exist? I had a conversation like this with a student at the University of Toronto once. He faltered, and then he said, okay, this microphone exists. <laughs> all right, well, good. I can work with that. Here's the second question. And I agree with you, by the way, things do exist. Here's the second question. The things that exist, whatever they are, have they always existed? No, they haven't always existed. So in other words, they came into being at some point in time. Yeah, like the Big Bang or something like that. Now, I know, and you know, Todd, that a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with Big Bang, all right? I'm just saying, don't worry about that. Both the Christian and the non-Christian believe the same thing, no matter what they call it. They believe the universe is not eternal. It came into existence at some point in the past. That's what we work with, okay? So, all right, we'll just give him his word, Big Bang. Fine, no worries, all right? Now, here's the last question. And I agree with you, I'll tell him. I believe that the universe came into existence sometime in the past. It's not eternal. Okay, we both agree so far. Here's the last question, and this is the one that counts. What caused the universe to come into existence? Now, there's only two options, I tell him. Make it easy on you. Either something or no thing. Either something or no thing. Now, for the smart atheists who are into rationality and reason, it can't be both. That violates the law of non-contradiction. It can't be neither. That violates the law of excluded middle. There's only two options, something or no thing. So what say you? Now he's in a fix because he doesn't want to say something caused the universe to come into existence, because that would have to be something outside of the universe. That means his materialism is dead in the water. That would mean that whatever that is, is powerful. It's smart, probably have to be a person because only persons or agents make decisions to start things happening. And that's what would be necessary here. He didn't want to go there, but what's the only alternative left for him? The only alternative is to say, well, the universe popped into existence out of nothing for no reason, no cause. Okay, I guess that might be possible, but here's my question. Is that the odds-on favorite? Is that the odds-on favorite? Now, of course, the answer to that is no. It's not the odds-on favorite. It's worse than magic. In magic, a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, right? But in this case, there's no magician and there's no hat. There's just the rabbit being 
coming into existence, the universe, so to speak. So all I'm asking him to think about is what is most reasonable. And of course, the most reasonable option is that something outside of the universe was responsible for the universe, and it would have to be a cause that's adequate to the creation of the universe. And you're going to get pretty close to God right there, okay? And then I let it sit. I just let it sit because I'm just trying to put a stone in the shoe. I'm not trying to even get him to admit before the public that God exists. Now, what happened with this atheist at the uh, University of Toronto is he wasn't satisfied. Just before he walked away from the microphone, he said, well, I'm going to stick with a scientific option. And I said, but you haven't given me any scientific option. And the fact is, if the universe came into existence, it must have come into existence from some other cause before science had anything to work with. So it can't be, even in principle, a scientific cause. All right. One other thing I want, Todd, you to notice and your listeners to notice, and that's this, that I didn't lay all those pieces on the table. I didn't say, well, things exist and the things that exist haven't always existed. They came into existence and something had to cause them to come into existence. Therefore, that causes God. Now, that's basically the same cosmological argument. But notice I'm putting all those pieces there, and every time I make a statement in my favor, in the favor of my argument, that's an invitation for them to take exception with me. Oh, no, well, we don't. Maybe we're all butterflies dreaming. Maybe the universe is eternal. You know, it doesn't have to be God. It could be, who knows? could be God. But I don't give them the chance because instead of me putting things on the table, I ask a question that gets them to put the piece on the table. In other words, I am subtly enlisting my opponent as an ally in making the case that their view is false. And in every single subject that I deal with in Street Smarts, all of the questions are meant to do that. They are meant to give comments, just simple steps that gives common sense responses that are pieces in place that allow me then, when I get to my conclusion, just like Lieutenant Colombo, it's all there. It's hard to take exception with it. It's going to hopefully force them to either think about it or deny what is obviously against their case. And that is the power of the Street Smarts approach. Greg Kokel is our guest. We're using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers. What is the chief spiritual obstacle you will encounter? We'll answer that question next. The church's music from the second century. The 6th century. The 12th century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The 21st century. 
the best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Thanks to your generous donations, we produced an audio version of the book, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn. You can listen and download it for free. Just go to issuesetc.org and enter your email address. We'll send you a link to the new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. We're using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers with Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason. Greg, what's the chief spiritual obstacle you'll encounter when dealing with unbelievers? Well, you know, this one is one that goes all the way back to the beginning, and so it's been around forever. I call it the primal heresy. But ever since the 60s, it has risen in significance in the cultural discussion. Until now, it's almost an idol of the culture, okay? Simply put, this is called relativism. All right. A lot of folks don't exactly know what relativism means. They spend a lot of time characterizing what it's about. But it is the idea that the only truth that matters, and in some people's thinking, the only thing that is true is what's going on inside of an individual or the subject. That's why they call relativism subjectivism. It's characterized by terminology or phrases people might have heard, like, that's your truth. In other words, it's true for you as a subject. You believe it, but it's not my truth because I don't believe it as a subject, as an individual person or whatever. Now, this is a distortion of the word truth because truth simply means fact. A thing that's true is something that's a fact. You and I are having this conversation. Is that true? Yes, that's a fact. If we weren't having this conversation, it wouldn't be true. It would not be a fact. It would be false, okay? There is no real place for your truth, my truth. What that phraseology is meant to do is kind of hang on to the concept of truth in some sense while eviscerating it at the same time, making truth completely subjective. Now, this has been in play since the 60s. I was in high school in the 60s and college, and then since then. So I know the trend, and I've seen this pattern change. And this is what happened in the garden. God said, this is what's right. Here's what's wrong. And what our first parents did was they said, 
well, it looks good to me. It will give me knowledge. It's beneficial for me. I will do what I want to do. That's my truth instead of what God said to do. So that's the internal versus the external. And this internal-external distinction is a simple way of characterizing the difference between relativism, that what's true for me on the inside of me, and objectivism, what's true about the outside world. Now, to make an example, gravity (laughs) is a true feature of the outside world. It isn't dependent on my beliefs, what I believe. If I stop believing in gravity, I'm not going to float away. Well, certainly when it comes to religious claims and ethical claims, but all kinds of other claims now, even about sexuality, what is important to people, what is considered authentic now, is what's on the inside. doesn't matter what their physical body looks like. They are a, a male or a female based on what they believe. Something on the inside, not something on the outside. So that's the gender issue. Things are right or wrong for people based on what they believe. If a woman believes that her unborn child is a child, then it's a child to her. If she believes that whatever's growing on the inside of her uterus is just a glob of flesh that has no value, that's true for her. Get the abortion, no problem. The other woman wants to carry a term, no problem. This is all relativism. But now it's been, like I said, catapulted into a the one commandment that we are obliged to obey. And that is simply stated in three words, you do you. That's the ethic of the age. Some call it expressive individualism. Some just call it radical relativism. That's what it is. The truth is always grounded in the individual. Now, the reason that this is so important, Todd, for people to understand right out of the gates is this is what they're going to face in the street. In all their spiritual conversations, they can pretty much trust even people who identify as Christians are still basically driven by this relativistic impulse that what I believe is what makes my beliefs true, just that I believe it. And they're not even interested in whether it matches the world outside. So what do you believe? Oh, I'm a Buddhist. I like Buddhism. Oh, somebody else likes Judaism. Somebody else likes Christianity. They like what Jesus said. Notice the language. I like this. I like that. I like that. That's not the right question to ask when it comes to religion, which is supposedly a picture of reality. The right question to ask is not whether you like it or not, but whether or not it's actually true, and now I have to qualify this, to the way the world is outside. Not true to me, because you can believe all kinds of things true to you that are just flat out false. And reality has a way of getting our attention when we don't take it seriously. And this is the part of reality that is most important to take seriously. Claims about God and salvation and eternity. So that's the biggest thing people are facing right now, Todd. Radical relativism. You do you. So how is that related to the chief ideological obstacle that we face? Well, they're combined. You know, these are the the ideological obstacle turns out to be, I kind of combined them both in that characterization. And that is relativism is the problem. And then when you're talking with people, they are going to always default, even in their objections, to what they like and what they want. 
Okay. So it used to be like when the new atheists came out in the 2000s, right? Right after the turn of the, the millennium. And then we had 2001 and 9-11. And then Christianity is dangerous, right? Religion is dangerous, poisons everything, Christopher Hitchens famously said. Okay. Well, so Christianity is false. Theism is false and it's dangerous. Okay. That isn't the view nowadays. The view nowadays isn't that there is no God. The view nowadays is if there is a God who won't let me do whatever I want, especially sexually, then that God's not a good God. I don't care if God exists. What I care is that whatever God exists allows me to do whatever I want. Now, of course, Paul talked about this in Romans 1. The evidence of God is clear, but they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They have unrighteous motives. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to bend the knee. And so they are going to suppress the truth of God or the truth of who God is. In this case, they're not even denying that God exists. They're just saying, I don't want to have anything to do with him because my self-created idols, my passions, my desires, my gender identity, my authentic self, that is the idol that I'm going to bend the knee to. That is the one that's on the throne. And so you can see how the relativism that goes all the way back to the garden, which has taken such radical center stage ideologically here in practical terms, expresses itself in these kinds of challenges that we see in the culture. And sometimes these challenges are not overcomable. People are, and this is very important, Street Smarts identifies a really good, productive game plan. The answers to the challenges that I give and the questions that are leading questions that I offer for exploring each of these challenges and exposing the liabilities, these are good questions. And they're the most powerful technique that I know how to move forward, Todd, but there's no silver bullet. There is nothing magical about these. These are shrewd. These are well-informed, but ultimately the Holy Spirit has got to move in people's heart to overcome the radical blindness that is a result of the spiritual conflict in the world that affects their lives and their views. And we read about this, of course, in Ephesians 6. There are spiritual schemes at play that blind the eyes of the non-believers. That's 2 Corinthians 4. The whole world is held captive by the devil to do his will. That's 1 John chapter 5 and uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The whole world is blinded. You see this theme over and over. So we realize that it's our job on our side of the equation and the conversation as Christians to be faithful to God, to communicate the truth as clearly, as faithfully, and as persuasively, and as graciously as possible. That's our side. We're 100% responsible for that. We are not responsible for how they respond. That is God's responsibility, and we entrust that part to God. Greg Kokel is our guest. We're using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers. He's also wrote several books, including his latest, Street Smarts. When we come back, why does he say never read a Bible verse? We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. 
Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Biblical Worldview Conference is Saturday, November 4th in Chicago. This year's theme is, For Such a Time as This, Discernment, Boldness, and Compassion. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will be speaking on gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and sharing Christ in a woke culture. For more information, visit worldviewchicago.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference, November 4th in Chicago, worldviewchicago.org. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. Craig Kokel is our guest. We're using questions to answer the objections of unbelievers. This is Issues Etc. Craig, why do you say never read a Bible verse? Oh, yeah, this is uh, catches people by surprise a little bit. The problem that I have encountered with Christians, and I've been doing radio for 33 years, call-in radio, and a lot of times people call in and say, what does this verse mean? I have trouble with it. Well, part of the problem is they're only reading the verse. And if you read a verse, it's very easy to misunderstand what the writer is intending to mean in that verse, which is what we're supposed to figure out. Somebody could take one line out of this conversation, Todd, you and I are having, and they might be totally mystified by what uh, that one line means, or they could come to all kinds of faulty conclusions about what we had been talking about. And so when I say never read a Bible verse, I don't mean don't read the Bible. I mean don't read it by individual verses, as if these individual verses have discrete meaning sitting all on their own. Oh, maybe in the book of Proverbs, because that's the way that's written. But when you have narrative, when you have a discourse, like in the epistles, narrative in the gospels, in the book of Acts by Luke, or even the Old Testament narrative of the history there, you have to read a paragraph at least, and sometimes the whole chapter or more, to be able to zero in on the meaning of this passage. And so when I talk in Street Smarts about problems with the Bible, and people raise objections to certain things they read in the Bible, this is the mistake they're making. For example, when they read about Abraham and how Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son, well, they read that little line or that little command, and they leave it there, and they say, how gruesome God wants his people to sacrifice their children. No, he doesn't. He wants just the opposite. 
That's why he put Abraham through that whole thing. And Abraham knew he wasn't going to have to sacrifice his son because earlier in the account, he said to his servant, you stay here. We're going to go up to the top of the mountain and we will return. And he says to his son, God will provide the sacrifice. So when they read the entire account, it is much less likely they will misunderstand the line that offends them so much. They didn't follow the rule that we at Standard Reason have been repeating for years and years and years, never read a Bible verse. If you want to know what a verse means, you have to read at least a paragraph, and this is true more in the epistles. And if you're doing historical work, Jesus in the Gospels or some account in the Hebrew Scriptures, you have to read maybe the whole chapter to get the relevant context to be able to draw the right conclusion about the verse in question. Finally, how do you present Jesus as Savior? Well, the word gospel is from the Greek word euangelion. Okay, it means good news. It's interesting that Jesus didn't start out with good news. He started out with bad news. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, your righteousness must succeed the righteousness of the most holy people you know, scribes and Pharisees, in order to get in the kingdom. And if you haven't committed murder, that's not enough. You can't even call your brother fool or else you're going to hell. If you don't commit adultery, that's not enough. You can't even think about it. Like who qualifies for that or else you're going to hell? This is all bad news. You cannot talk in a meaningful way about the Savior, the good news, unless somebody has the bad news clearly in mind. Lutherans have a great division, law and gospel, law and gospel, law and gospel. The law is God's demands. The gospel is the good news, a rescue from the guilt that we have for not keeping God's commands. If you can't keep those in balance when you're communicating to people, and there are different ways to do it. Jesus did it some ways. The apostles did it other ways, but we see it all happening. You cannot give a meaningful characterization of what it means to have the gospel good news if people don't know what Jesus is saving them from. He's saving them from their own sin, and most importantly, he's saving them from the Father's anger and justice against that sin because Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. Jesus pays so that we don't have to. That's the gospel. Greg Kokel is founder of Stand to Reason based in Signal Hill, California. He's adjunct professor in Christian apologetics at Biola University, author of several books, including his latest Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Greg, thanks. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate talking to you again. Look forward to the next time. Wednesday on Issues Etc., it's our weekly media coverage of religion episode with journalist Terry Mattingly. We'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about Jesus healing a widow's son in Luke chapter 7. On Thursday, we'll talk with Katie Faust about parenting strategies for helping children resist leftist indoctrination. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.
You're invited to October Fiesta, Friday night, September 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. October Fiesta features authentic Mexican cuisine, desserts from Cruda Bakery, a festive mariachi band, and of course, plenty of Mexican beverages. Tickets are $25. Proceeds benefit St. Paul Lutheran School, the only classical Lutheran school in Greater St. Louis. Learn more at school.stpaulhamill.org. October Fiesta is sponsored in part by Ernst Heating and Cooling, Vallo Floor Coverings, Seavers Equipment, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, Baker Construction, Bunker Hill Chiropractic, and Lutheran Public Radio. October Fiesta, Friday night, September 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. School.stpaulhamill.org. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra, and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website withangelsandarchangels.org. Archangels.org. 